And so we wonder why in 50 years we haven't seen progress. We wonder why in 50 years the needle has not moved farther than it has or as far as we want it to. And what I tell my colleagues who are doing anti-racist work without the intersection of skin tone and colorism is that because the problem is not just about race, right? Like all of the, the social inequalities and issues and systemic oppression that we're trying to undo can't be singularly addressed or understood through the idea and concept of race alone. And I, I really believe that once we as a collective take the intersection of colorism as seriously as it needs to be taken, we will accelerate our efforts. Hello and welcome to On Power Pleasure, a podcast about our bodies and the power and pleasure within. My name is Adam B. I'm an intimacy coach, space holder, facilitator, located on the occupied lands of the Lenape people, otherwise known as New York City. And I always encourage folks, if you don't know whose land you're on, you can always go to native-land.ca, put in your zip code, find out history of whose land that is, links to get more information, links to donate. And today I am so happy to have Dr. Sarah Webb with us. Dr. Sarah Webb is, I'm going to read her bio real quick, uh, important. And is it okay with you if I, if I give um, my, my, what I see in you and why I wanted to have you here? <laughs> Yes, please do. It's your podcast and I'm just on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the official bio says that Dr. Sarah Webb is an international speaker, consultant, and coach. She launched the global initiative Colorism Healing in 2013 to raise awareness and foster healing. Dr. Webb's myriad efforts to address colorism include designing college courses, hosting a writing contest, publishing books, teaching workshops, and mentoring students across the world. Dr. Webb has written several articles, presented at numerous conferences, and been featured on radio stations, Fox Soul TV, the Illinois Times, Forbes, and the TEDx stage. You've done so much, and as I'm sure everyone listening and watching will, will see, that you carry so much wisdom, so much brightness in, in you, and for folks, if this is your first encounter with Dr. Webb, I think you're in for a real treat. The first moment I, I happened upon your work kind of by accident doing a, a Google search, it landed with me so deeply and has continued to land with me. I feel so honored that you're here. And I like to name those dynamics of the fact that this is such a gift of your time and energy, a gift for me and for the listeners and so deeply appreciative of that gift. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> and where are you right now? I, it's hard to track where you are located. Yes, I am currently in Los Angeles, California, downtown Los Angeles okay. for a few more weeks. Mm. I prefer warmer weather. And so this environment 
is the perfect time of year because it's not too hot in, down here in the Southwest, but it's also much warmer than I would have been if I had stayed in the Northeast. <laughs> mm, yes, it is getting cold here quite fast. Yeah. Well, as you know, talked about before the podcast, I wanted to talk to you because I feel like your work around colorism is so deeply important and integral to discussions around power and pleasure as a power dynamic colorism impacts the ways in which we ask for what we want the ways in which we might have power to say no to what we don't want and and i feel like it's something that in my opinion might get lost in the discussion of some of the other power dynamics but that it is always always there in such a big way um to get us started i did want to ask you dr webb if you could tell us about your relationship to your body particularly how was your relationship growing up as a kid and how has that how has that changed for you yeah this is a great question see i was right that this was (laughs) going to be a different kind of interview I don't think I've ever been asked that question, at least not in that way. And my relationship to my body has definitely changed and it continues to change, right? I'm in my late thirties. And so the, the natural aging process, I think inherently comes with a lot of changes in terms of experiencing more pain in my body. Now having feeling like I have less range of motion in my body, but I will start with the younger version of myself. I, I never, really thought explicitly about my body very often, except as it pertains to certain things like skin tone, hair texture, and size, right? And I think one of my early experiences in terms of recognizing my body and how the dissonance between the interior world and my body being an interface between the interior world and the external world, right? It's just, it's the, it is the interface. It's how I engage with the external world. It's how my body, I use it to interact with things outside of my own mind and outside of my own like spirit and consciousness, right? And so it's, it's interesting to have throughout my life noticed that there were disparities between what was inside, like my internal reality the my own internal experience of my body versus the responses that my body might invoke from other people. And I started noticing that really early. And when I talk about colorism, growing up in a family of different skin tones, one of the earliest stories my mom tells, I don't have this memory, but when I started talking about colorism, it was a story my mom related to me about how when I was five, my I had some extended relatives who were really complimenting and doting on my sister who's lighter skinned and saying that she was going to be a heartbreaker and that my mom would have to pay special attention to her, right? Because she would be desirable. And they weren't saying that about me. They And it was interesting because usually in family dynamics, people dote on the youngest child because mm-hmm. of the, the cuteness factor, some people might call it. In this case, that my youngness did not give me any cool points or cute points with my these relatives. And my mom heard me whispering just to myself or just to whoever, oh, that's because she's light-skinned, right? And so at five, I recognized 
the importance of our physical bodies and how the rest of the world engages with us. And I always tell that story because if I was able to articulate that at five, mm -hmm. I can only imagine how many repetitive moments or how many significant moments in which I understood or recognized even at five, the impact that my body had on the value that other people placed on me or the, the actual treatment that people gave to me. And so I think because of that, I have had a somewhat fraught relationship to my body because of, I guess, fear. It probably triggered some insecurities about regardless of my internal reality, my internal consciousness, there was always that sort of timidness or fear around what, what is my body going to elicit from the external world? And usually those things have been painful. Usually those things have been not affirming or disaffirming in many ways or hypercritical. And I think I mentioned size because I, I always use size as one of those intersections of privilege that I do have, right? So while my skin tone and my racial identity, my racialized features, which is my hair texture, my facial features have always sort of been negated and rejected in society, the, the clear contrast between one, being thin my entire life, and also for most of my life, right? Especially in the younger years, having a relatively athletic body and athletic build, how that was the one thing in terms of my physical appearance that was affirmed very much, very clearly, like I saw the difference in how my body type in terms of the size and shape and the way it functioned was very much normal, mainstream, celebrated in the culture, right? Mm. But compared to things like my hair texture and my skin tone. Mm -hmm. And I think those experiences with my body, and again, for me, it's also like the impact that my body has in my lived experience, my day-to-day -day experience, really contributes to my understanding of intersectionality and contributes to my understanding of the both and of privilege and marginalization and how those realities can coexist in a single body. But as I grew older, I think it's partly related to my body, but also partly related to like my self-concept as a whole. And my body is a part of that, right? Leaning more into the like radical self-acceptance and seeing how I've been deeply conditioned into like the things that I both celebrate about my body or that I sort of don't celebrate about my body are a part of a conditioning. And as I get older, it's requiring or asking of me to practice more acceptance, right? Like I mentioned, more pain now. Someone who used to love running, right? For me, running was like a moving meditation, the knee pain that I experience now, right? And so having just like really a different relationship to like the, the aesthetics of my body, like the way it looks, the way I choose to adorn it, but also the way it's actually functioning and seeing things come up, right? Like more swelling in my ankles now. It's choosing to observe these things and allowing it as an opportunity to develop a mindful self-care practice, right? And I think of self-care as an act of self-love. And I think of love and self-love as being action and like the, the things that we do with and for ourselves being a form of self-care. But I will say too, in, a, in another realm is pleasure specifically, right? And this idea of power and growing up being raised in a really religious household 
it's an interesting kind of religious household because still like uh, politically liberal and leaning in some ways, but very much religious and feeling very restricted in the self-expression of my body, right? And being conditioned to be more modest and mm. to, to not are wear certain things and to wear other things instead so that certain things weren't, certain body parts aren't exposed, right? Are not showing too much skin or cleavage or too much leg, right? And also even just that practice of hiding the body being again, sort of like an icon for hiding the self as a whole, right? Like the both the body, mind and spirit and sort of this conditioning to shrink, conditioning to to hide or restrict expression and movement and pleasure, right? And then even thinking about the experiences of physical pleasure and the, the doctrine and within the religion that I practiced, but other religions as well of this idea of pleasure as being associated with sin, mm-hmm. right? And that could be physical pleasure through things like sex, but also physical pleasure, like things like recreational substances or certain types of gaming, AKA gambling and those kinds of things. The, the, the language of the rhetoric was like things of the flesh mm-hmm. are these things are carnal, right? And we want to focus on spiritual things, right? And so there was this dichotomy created for me when I was younger between the evolved spiritual pursuits versus the fleshly carnal pursuits, which, which were always denigrated, which were always seen again as like sinful. And I've, I've gone through a long process of unlearning a lot of religious indoctrination. And that that has been a big one as well, is the the freedom and the the my understanding or concept of what pleasure is and like just disregarding the, the concept of sin being associated with pleasure, right? And I do think there are still probably remnants that I'm not even consciously aware of, but that's like an ongoing pursuit that I have for sure. And I, I think just being aware that I could subconsciously be impacted by those things is a benefit to me. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to assume that all of that conditioning and indoctrination is just irrelevant, right? And so I do try to be conscious and cautious if I'm refraining from certain things or hesitant about certain things or if I feel triggered by certain things, right? Like always self-reflecting, like how much of my resistance to showing up in my body in a certain way is an authentic boundary that I'm setting with myself versus Mm. fear around certain indoctrination. So I know that was a lot. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your thoughts or follow-up questions. With that. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm so struck by your story of yourself at, at five years old, being a five-year-old girl and holding that. And I'm curious what that feels like in your body now, how you hold that memory of your five-year-old self. Yeah. I like the the phrasing hold, holding that memory, because that is definitely what it feels like. I think that analogy is appropriate. And I've used analogies like the the nesting dolls where you have a large doll and you have smaller dolls that are nested inside of it. I definitely have been seeing that as an analogy for how I feel towards my younger selves, how I feel towards the little girl version of me still being in my body. And I don't know if that 
sounds weird to people. I, I think I've heard other people say they resonate with that mm-hmm. analogy as well. But I definitely consciously, but also physically, I still feel uh, like her energy, like literally with inside my existing body. And I don't see it as like a separate memory, for example, or I don't see it as being an external entity that's somewhere else in space and time, but that it is very much an energy, almost, I don't want to say DNA, but sort of like the the tissue or the the atom, the atomic makeup of who I am still contains aspects of her. And those moments when I am triggered, when I do feel the butterflies in my stomach, the knots in my throat, knot in my throat is a huge one for me. That is definitely a common experience I have when I'm struggling with things or older memories are coming up. But it also, again, when I, as I matured and I started to understand that relationship and I was introduced to the concept and the idea of having my younger self, my younger selves with me and within me at all times, I think facilitated my desire and my ability, capacity to be self-nurturing. Because then it, it sort of becomes, you see your, your present self differently as well, right? It's able, I'm able to, to experience and see my 37-year-old self with more grace and compassion and knowing the, the layers of of that body. And I, I don't know if the the duality with which I think of myself and speak to myself and like interact with myself is very much present for me. I don't know if it's it's probably partly because I am a Gemini and so that duality is a thing for us. But I, I definitely think of myself in plural form anyway. And so like the the there's a, always a part of me or an aspect of me that is caring for the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. And that is sort of, and I think sometimes those roles change because my younger self oftentimes steps up as the protector and the one who cares for older versions of me, right? Because there was the younger self in many ways was a lot more fearless and a lot more in touch with her rage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the she, rage was very, very accessible to my younger self. And so definitely she is just as much a protector of older versions as my present self is nurturing and protecting of her as well. Mm. Oh, I love that. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. I know that these things we experience, particularly at that age, and I just can't imagine holding that, having to hold it, and then carrying that through, and also seeing the the fire of that rage impacting your life and your life's work and how much beauty has come from that. Mm-hmm. And speaking, yeah, I have, oh, go ahead. I have, so much, I have so much respect for her rage, for our rage <laughs> in particular, because I was talking with a friend and their perspective was that we don't always need a reason for rage. Why can't rage just be without a backstory, without an origin story for why a person is angry? One, I think, as I understand intergenerational trauma, I can definitely see rage seeming to have no immediate cause, right? Because it is, it can be inherited, mm-hmm. both spiritually and physically through DNA. But also, like for me personally, there is a story behind the rage, right? And so I, while I acknowledge that there doesn't, might not always have to be, for me, there definitely is that. And understanding that rage is informative 
And what I've been studying and learning is that a lot of times when a boundary is crossed, even if we don't have the awareness to know that that's what's happening, a lot of times the rage and the anger is our innate self-protection. Like if you're crossing a boundary, whether it's an emotional boundary or a physical boundary, and I'm experiencing rage or anger or resentment or some sort of visceral reaction in response to that. And what I know now is that a lot of my rage is because of the, the crossing of those psychological boundaries. And I've known for a while that rage for me has, was sort of like the, the callus that forms over a very tender spot. And so I see my, my younger self's heart being really, really tender at five and younger, right? And even within the womb, we start to integrate our mother's emotions, right? Just being transmitted through the womb. And so anger and rage for me, and I think I would say for other people as well, I'm not going to say a lot of other people, but other people as well, that rage becomes the callus that is protecting that very, very tender part of us that due to circumstances, due to an environment, whether it be an immediate home environment or just the larger society, that tender spot is not safe. Mm-hmm. And so we have ways of developing calluses over those tender spots. And for some people, that callus could be depression. That callus could be the opposite of rage. It could be other, there are so many other ways to have a callus over a tender spot. And for me, it definitely showed up in in rage, in volatile rage too, mm-hmm. right? I had the, the reputation of being so angry and so quick to anger and like having a short temper. And I'm saying this, Adam, see, I don't know if you can hear that, that engine revving. It's just like confirmation for like, yes, rage, right? But I'm, I'm taking my time to say this because within the past year or so, it's really been brought to my attention how people perceive me in the present moment, how people perceive 37-year-old Dr. Sarah L. Webb as being compassionate and loving and maybe like tender and full of joy and light. And sometimes I think, so I accept that perception, but I think I would serve my community as well if they understood, right? That there were, there are versions of me that exist outside of the, the version that you see today, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is a very important part of my story. And I wouldn't have gotten to be here without her Mm. and so i want more people to know that part of my story as Mm. well well that feels so important and it brings up so much in me thinking about how can we be in love and compassion without rage Mm. Mm -hmm. i don't and that's something i sit with a lot i don't know what my my spiritual teachers might say about that but but to protect to set limits to say no all the things that are crossing those boundaries or crossing into our domain. Mm-hmm. I want to take a step back and could you define for folks listening, what is colorism? How does it sit within and perhaps outside of, of racism, which, which more people might be familiar with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel, so this conversation is motivating me to, use different strategies for explaining things. And I, I love the way you phrased the way it sits within and without racism, because that is so insightful, I think. I think that's a very insightful question, is to acknowledge that 
So when we think about a concept like race, very often we say things like, oh, well, race is a social construct, right? Like it, it is very much in the realm of concept, right? You can ch- check a box on a form as identifying race. It is a legal construct, right? It's been written into law. Ideas of race have been part of um, founding documents in certain countries, and they determined who could get a property and things like that. And a lot of it has to do with ancestry and who your parents were, how your parents identified. And what I emphasize with an issue, with the issue of colorism, is that all of a sudden, it's an embodied version of all the things we associate with race. And a lot of times, what we attribute to racism is better understood through the lens of colorism. So if you look at a stranger and you say like, oh, I was going to the grocery store and this white guy bumped into me, right? You don't know him. And so to attribute that the racial identity of white to this person is based solely on the body, the mm. physical body that you are observing. And the same with any other race of people. If we see a person on a train or if we, the new teacher comes to our class and we attach a racial identity, our perception on that person, we, we are going through the body in order to have that, develop that concept or that perception of them. And so colorism, I think, is very much a, it, it does exist within racism and without racism, without it, like it, surrounding it. Because in many different cultures and many different eras of our history as humans, the physical body was used to categorize people into races, right? And so because you look different, because you have these certain physical attributes we're going to label you and categorize you as a particular race, mm. right? And some of that is also tied to location. It's a very complex system. I say it implodes under the weight of its own idiocracy, right? So, but then as societies developed, then racial categories, well, one, people realize like, oh, these people are all identifying as the same racial category and they don't share physical attributes, right? And so in our contemporary society, the, uh, the attachment of physical attributes to racial identity, we moved further and further away from that, right? And so it's harder, much harder now to understand race through the lens of the physical body. And so I always tell people that you can identify one way racially and not look anything like someone else who also identifies that way racially. Mm-hmm have very different skin tones, very different hair textures, very different facial features. Even when we think about something like colorism, a lot of times people understand it as being about mixed race identity. And I think I'm, a very simple way to understand it is if you have two biracial siblings, they have the same mother and the same father. Their mother is a completely different racial identity as their father, and you say you have three siblings, right? All of them born of those same two parents, but yet one of them has an Afro, one of them has loose wavy hair, 
The other one has green eyes. One of them has brown eyes. One of them has a dark complexion. One of them has a tan complexion. One of them has a very pale white complexion, right? And yet they're all siblings and they would all technically, based on our understandings of race, they would all technically be considered the same race. They would all share the same racial identity and yet they look very different. Mm -hmm. And so I always try to explain colorism as regardless, regardless of your racial identity, colorism is a system in which people with lighter skin tones are at the top of the social hierarchy and people with darker skin tones are at the bottom of the social hierarchy, are relegated to the bottom of the social hierarchy. And I say relegated because I think without that clarifier, people might say, oh, well, maybe they inherently deserve to be at the bottom. It's like, no, it's, it's a systematized process in which certain people are positioned in places in society. And that was a long <laughs> explanation, but hopefully people were able to kind of follow some of that. Mm. Well, this is such an important one as we as we have this conversation and because it does get into some important nuances of how we talk about not just race, but also these other intersectional dynamics that are at play and how they all come together in this. And I'm I wanted to ask you, Dr. Webb, if you could Talk about how colorism is impacting all of us. I'm sitting here as a white-bodied, light-skinned individual. Why should I care about colorism? How does it impact me or anyone else listening? And I feel like there can be a tendency to think, oh, this is this is an issue just for black-bodied people or darker-skinned oh. people. Mm -hmm. And And it's not. It's impacting all of us, and it's impacting the ways in which we interact with one another, come into community, ask for what we want, take advantage of other folks. Can you speak to that? Yes. I, when I speak, I have a way of like also being like saying the things, but then I like critiquing what I'm saying at the, at the same time. So <laughs> forgive me as I like pause and think about things, but you're right. People absolutely, when they say, oh, you're not impacted by colorism, so you don't understand, right? I understand where they're coming from and what they mean by that. And what they're saying is that you're not marginalized in the system of colorism, right? But, so I'll say this to be as clear as possible. A positive impact is still an impact. And so literally anybody, we're all impacted. We're all implicated in colorism. But also what I'll say, too, is that I, I will not remember who said this, but there's it, it could be Charles, Charles Mills, who wrote The Racial Contract, if not him, someone similar to him, explained that racism, for example, is corrupting and polluting the souls of white people, right? And I don't think that anyone who is part of a toxic system or part of an oppressive system is getting out without damage. And so some of the practical ways that it impacts everyone, you hear a lot of times with lighter skinned people feeling alienated and feeling artificially separated from people who would otherwise be family, mm. our kin, right? Mm. And so colorism, phrase 
the fabric of our relationships. And I think a lot of times it's painful to acknowledge for people with lighter skin to acknowledge that there is a social hierarchy in which they have privilege. And sometimes people will liken it to survivor's guilt of why I didn't want this privilege. And literally I had a, a person on LinkedIn, like just this week, we repost one of my posts and saying like, I was the lighter skin cousin, I had green eyes. And it was painful to know that I was getting all of this attention and being doted on by family members because I was a lighter skinned cousin and my other cousins were not treated the same way. They were not given the same level of love and affection and that being a source of pain. And so I often, I've coached lighter skinned individuals about the, again, the reality that pain and privilege can coexist. And I think that's a concept that is hard to understand, but the same thing that gives you privilege can also be the source of your pain for some of the reasons that I've explained. Because while it might, you might have a skin tone that is celebrated in the culture, it could be a painful experience to know that that's precisely why it's difficult to form relationships with people who are darker skinned, for example. But also I think you mentioned this in the question, but also in our pre-call about how colorism impacts the ways we show up in spaces and how we ask for things, how we, our sense of agency and putting up boundaries are saying, no, I don't want that, that doesn't feel right, or I, I want more of this, I like this, this feels good. And a lot of times when you have, and so our position in society can be internalized, right? And I think that's important to keep in mind is that if you have a more powerful position in society, a lot of times you can internalize that sense of power and it's not always a conscious thing. And I think that's where some of the, the danger comes in at mm. in terms of being responsible with the, the forms of privilege that we do have is that we could have internalized an unconscious sense of being entitled to taking up a certain amount of space, right? And and again, in terms of, I feel like I can speak to this from my privilege as a thin person in a society that's currently obsessed with being thin, right? Mm -hmm. And that definitely marginalizes and has oppressed larger bodies, right? And there's there are ways that we can unknowingly show up that cause harm or that that not even when I say cause harm, I think people might hear that and say like, oh, I'm actively hurting someone. But I think simply erasing someone is a form of harm, right? Mm -hmm. Or again, taking up space in a disproportionate way could also be a form of harm because there's also collective harm. Mm -hmm. So I think the colorism matters for everyone because we're all implicated. And I also have to say this, as we're talking about everyone being implicated in colorism, I also want people to know that as dark-skinned people, we can also support the hierarchy in which we are marginalized, right? Because again, we can internalize our given positions, the, the places where we're relegated to. A lot of times we feel like that is the natural order of things. And so I've had darker-skinned people scoff at the idea that lighter is not inherently better, that straighter hair is not inherently better, right? And so there's, it's really, it's 
I think it's really interesting how no matter what we look like or where we're positioned in the status quo, the systems are successful and systems sustain themselves because everyone, regardless of their position, is internalizing the the naturalness mm. of that position. Mm-hmm. I hear you saying, mm-hmm, and so I'm curious to know what's, what thoughts are coming up for you. As mm. I- well, <laughs> I mean, to your last point, I think it's it's so important for these systems to make sure that we are upholding them, maintaining them, not bringing awareness to them. Because if we bring awareness to them, we might ask for something different. We'll see the the pain and trauma that it's creating. And so much of what you said resonated because I think it can be easier for us to have, um, let me step back. As you were talking about how this impacts everyone, Certainly there's the trauma of our subjugated selves. And then there's also the trauma of our perpetrator selves. And even if I'm getting these surface level privileges in this world because of, of my lighter skin, I am still embodying some really evil, vicious things and holding that and then maintaining it and keeping it. Mm-hmm. And... So much of what I get curious about is like, what is that doing to my body? How is it impacting my joy? And I loved how you phrased that it that it it's fraying the threads of our relationships. And I can't remember if you said community, but how this does fray our relationships and ability to be in community with one another, which is where we find joy and fulfillment. And instead, we're we're over here dividing and separating people based on something so shallow as what we see with our eyes as this as this skin color. Mm-hmm. How do you see this concept of colorism showing up in relationships? What are some common ways that it impacts relationships? And I guess I might define that Um, just for simplicity as romantic relationships? Yeah. I think that, so when I'll say it's a, as my understanding of romantic relationships has expanded over the past decade, I realize how broad that question is. But I think there are some foundational principles of colorism that impact all types of romantic connections, all types of romantic encounters and situations and dynamics. And a lot of it has to do with the intersection of the the gender binary, right? The, the male, female, masculine, feminine binary. One, the cultural teachings and religious teachings and all the indoctrinations that tell us you're either one or the other. And that one is inherently better than the other, right? To be masculine is seen as generally superior, but especially if you are a man. And the the subjugation and the, the very, very real violence and oppression that has come as a result of those patriarchal binaries. And that those relate to colorism and show up in the realm of colorism because the, the stereotypes and the iconic representations of masculinity have been attached to darker skin and to look at the history of 
people with darker skin tones with fuller features or thicker, curlier hair, they have been portrayed as more masculine and or more villainous, but also hypersexual and hypersexual in a way that is dehumanizing. Literally, the pseudoscience, the anthropologists who were colonialists by another name, right, would go to places around the world, look at the indigenous populations on different continents and sort of define them as being less human and being more driven more by their primal urges, right? And like that's that was the narrative that still is impacting and influencing how we organize society and how we organize and show up in relationships, right? And so those who were farther away from the European model of physicality, but also culture, right? So both in culture and in bodily structure and form, right? Those who are furthest away from that European standard were seen as more savage, more less civilized, right? And also masculinity being more beastly to use some of the, the terminology. And so in relationships, regardless of how people identify in terms of their gender, we still see that those associations and those stereotypes of, okay, we have the expectation that a person with darker skin tone is more masculine. And again, people listening might be like, well, I don't consciously think that, but <laughs> science tells us that the majority of our decisions are like happening at the subconscious and mm. unconscious level. So we don't necessarily have to be aware that we might be operating based on these biases to, to be doing that. And then a lot of times, not a lot of times, historically, femininity has been attached to lighter skin and more Eurocentric forms of face and body, right? And so there are what we call heteronormative patriarchal dynamics that play out for all of us, even if we are not in heteronormative relationships. And I've, I've known and seen how, for example, a darker skinned person will not want to date someone who looks like them, right? Because of perceived status, the attainment of greater status. Or we have the, the very common phenomenon of being a fetish, being fetishized. Whereas a, a lighter skinned person might have a preference for a darker skinned person. And there is a long history and legacy of that not being based and seeing the humanity of these people. And so it's it happens. I don't think colorism goes both ways, but fetishization definitely does. Mm. Can you but say you can more about that? You hit on my next five questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll explain why I th don't think colorism goes both ways, because I think it's it's not a lateral system. Right, it's a very much a hierarchical system. There's, mm -hmm. It's a vertical system, and so even if there's an interaction between two people, that is not flipping the entire social hierarchy, right? But with fetishization, you definitely have people who will fetishize a light-skinned person, and you definitely have people who would fetishize a darker-skinned person. And I use the terms lighter and darker because perceptions of what's dark and perceptions of what's light varies mm -hmm. from place to place, community to community, and so. All of it, if you, when you hear people say, oh, I only like light-skinned people, I really am only interested in dating dark-skinned people, 
a lot of times that is based in, is not based in just recognizing the humanity of the person on the other side of that relationship, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that hyper-focus on physical features, in this case, we're talking about skin tone, but it could be any physical feature that you're hyper-focused on, is in a way occluding, it's occluding, obscuring the, the person who happens to embody that, the person who happens to have that physical trait. And so we have to wonder, right, if I think a lot of times a lighter skinned person, for example, might appreciate being popular or getting a lot of attention or being famous on Instagram and having a lot of people be attracted to them. But I, but I always caution and urge and encourage light-skinned people, lighter-skinned people, to not participate in their own dehumanization. Because while it might seem like celebration, while it might seem like romantic attention and romantic validation, you always have to do your due diligence of understanding, like, are you actually seeing me? Mm-hmm. Do you actually see me? Or do you just see my skin tone? Mm-hmm. Right? And then on the, I think in terms of how people might internalize, a lot of darker skin people have internalized colorism, it often shows up in relationships in terms of accepting less than what you actually deserve in terms of how you're being treated, feeling like you have to compromise more, right? Or feeling like you're not in, entitled or have the, the privilege or the agency to, to be free in your body, right? Because we could even talk about like within the intimate moments, right? Whether it's actual sex or just intimate conversations or cuddling. If you've internalized colorism, a lot of times you are, it it can manifest as sort of a self-restriction or like self-limiting, not only beliefs, but self-limiting limiting behaviors. And so it creates an inability or an obstacle or a barrier to a deeper connection and like true intimacy with the other person if we are entering the relationship from a place of feeling like we have to compensate for who we are or feeling like we can't be our full self for fear of rejection or feel fear of being invalidated and the more i the more i'm talking and unpacking this question i realize just how vast (laughs) the impact of colorism can be in relationships And I know I also anticipate what listeners might be saying. They might say, oh, well, a light-skinned person could be insecure in a relationship as well. And I say, yes, that is very true. But it it's probably the source of that insecurity is probably something else, right? So like, just because you have lighter skinned, you might have other reasons for feeling neg- negated or rejected in society as well. So yeah, it's not like a a broad brush necessarily, but specifically in terms of the intersection and nuance of colorism, those are some of the the common patterns and themes that I've seen as it pertains to romantic relationships. But I'm curious to know like how what you've seen or like how what you've observed or maybe even experienced. Well, there's so much there. And yeah. I mean it makes me think about so many of the discussions I tend to have pretty frequently around power dynamics and how whether that is colorism or ageism or ableism or pretty privilege, how it's going to impact the ways in which at a very deep unconscious level, because we've been programmed 
into this belief since before we were born as you said we we inherit these beliefs we inherit that that trauma that is in our our family's dna epigenetically and how does this impact the ways in which i ask for what i want or as a light-skinned person how i might come in with so many assumptions of privilege and i think it makes me think of someone who who is in a position of power or who has been given a place of privilege systemically a, a white man who who has money who then just assumes that a darker skinned woman will say yes to him mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and that maybe depending on the situation if particularly if it's at work if if there is a financial exchange involved it might not feel safe enough to say no to that there may be no choice to say no and then and you beautifully named so many ways <laughs> that it can come into our interpersonal interactions and really impact the foundations of the ways in which we we show up for ourselves and and if it's sitting there unconsciously for so long how how are those ripples turning into waves and how can we bring awareness to it? Mm-hmm. One of the things you named that, that felt really uh, that I could feel in my body was talking about the, the gendered ways in which colorism shows up and how we, we attach assumptions of masculinity to darker skinned men and assumptions of femininity, femininity to lighter skinned women in that gender binary and how dissonant it must feel to hold that as perhaps a more feminine, darker skinned man or a more masculine presenting lighter skinned woman. Yep. And then how that then impacts the ways in which that person asks for what they want or is received within these systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I hear a lot too, stories and hearing, just hearing people speak about their experiences, there, a lot of people, a lot of us are donning masks because of those stereotypes and associations. And a lot of times it's the feeling the need to prove who you are or prove your worth or prove your value or to like self-validation because it's almost like wearing a mask to compensate for the filter that society might be having from their end, right? And so it's like a mask to compensate for a mask, right? Like a lens to compensate for another lens. And so it's it alienates us in many ways from our authentic selves and our authentic expressions, right? And like in my personal experience, being someone who identifies as a cis pet woman who is darker skinned, like, what does it mean when people say, like, especially when I had short hair, say, oh, thank you, sir, or like, or assume, or just in passing or in glancing, refer to me as a man, or hearing a, a young girl ask her mom, is that a boy or a girl, right? And wondering, like, to what extent is it not necessarily just my hair or my height, but 
how much of it is it is it harder for you to recognize my womanness <laughs> because I'm darker skinned, right? Mm-hmm. And I definitely think that when people because there's there's a trend, there's this this sort of stream of conversations and like this sort of branch of people who talk about colorism from the perspective of teaching dark skinned women how to be feminine. How to be feminine as a dark skinned woman, how to own your femininity as a dark skinned woman. Obviously, being very cis heteronormative in that discussion, but I think it's it's a direct result or a direct consequence or reflection of the those stereotypes that I unpacked earlier, right? And then I also think about what we have in terms of the gender binary and how restrictive it is for people of all genders, right? Because a lot of times when we talk about the oppressiveness of misogyny and patriarchy, we, we do focus on like one specific demographic. But I think regardless of how we identify in terms of gender or sexuality, we find that trying to play within that box and that structure is ultimately re- limiting and repressive for all of us. And so I think colorism being one of those, what do you call it, limitations within the system of patriarchy, right? So we can see colorism as impacting patriarchy and vice versa. It's definitely an important intersection and an important lens to have when we talk about dismantling gender binaries, but also gender differences are important to have when we're talking about colorism, Mm. right? And I think the there's still room for, I think, more expansiveness and nuance in looking at how, again, as you said, regardless of where we're situated in these systems and structures, we realize like we're all in a, in a prison. We're all being restricted and repressed in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. If we had more time, I would ask you to pause about every 20 seconds <laughs> because there are so many somatic elicitations just coming through in this and I wanted to ask you how you see colorism impacting anti-racism work mm. Mm. oh that's a good question you see how like, you're talking like how I set up for that one because it is it has been forefront it has been top of mind recently as I sort of navigate a career change, right? Like a, a veering into a different career trajectory than what I was doing a year ago. What I'll say is, I have to say this, is that far too often colorism is seen as a wrench in anti-racism work or seen as a distraction from anti-racism work or it's seen as antithetical in some ways, to anti-racism work. And my staunch belief is that there is no anti-racism work without anti-colorism work. Mm. And a lot of times, people who are on the front lines of anti-racism work have not done their internal work to acknowledge and question the interlocking systems that they benefit from, Mm. whether that be their gender identity as cis men or their their skin tone privilege, right? As lighter skinned people and are both, right? And that's, I think, the, the work that we all have to do 
and it's so easy. It's been what I've observed in the realm of people who do anti-racism work. What I feel in my gut is that it can be cathartic, but also sort of easy and low-hanging fruit to demand that white people and or white presenting people do their work and to critique the ways that white people show up in the world and not have the similar level of accountability and the similar standards for ourselves as people who are privileged in different ways. And that's what I've seen, unfortunately, a lot in the realm of anti-racism work is that many people downplay, dismiss, or outright deny the role that colorism plays in maintaining, sustaining, undergirding the system that they claim they want to dismantle. Mm. And I think when we look at things solely through the lens of race and racism, we miss crucial, key, critical causes and catalysts for the problems that we're seeing. So I know this is not like a research heavy conversation, but it's, it's important and helpful here. So I'll say that the research for decades of research have shown that the same disparities we associate and have attributed to race and racism over the years, that there are mirroring and parallel disparities within people, amongst people of the same race based on their skin tone. And so we wonder why in 50 years we haven't seen progress. We wonder why in 50 years the needle has not moved farther than it has or as far as we want it to. And what I tell my colleagues who are doing anti-racist work without the intersection of skin tone and colorism is that because the problem is not just about race, right? Like all of the, the social inequalities and issues and systemic oppression that we're trying to undo can't be singularly addressed or understood through the idea and concept of race alone. And I I really believe that once we as a collective take the intersection of colorism as seriously as it needs to be taken, we will accelerate our efforts. We will bolster our efforts to dismantle these interlocking systems of oppression. Mm. Mm. I feel like I want a whole other podcast just on that. Um, Many things came up for me. I'm going to pause myself, though, because I want to ask you one last question to end with, which is, what do you imagine coming from this work? What worlds can you imagine creating from a collective understanding and holding of colorism? Mm. I love this question. I think I feel like where I am being drawn to and where I'm being led to is love, peace, and joy. And having a very, very complicated, complex, nuanced concept of what those things really are. Because I don't think love, peace, and joy are numbing. 
I think a lot of times people hear those words and they think of it as sort of a something that numbs us to pain. Like there's no pain where there's joy or there's no pain where there's peace, right? Or there's no friction or tension where there's peace, love, and joy. And I think that those feelings, emotions, states of being are more complex than just quote unquote feeling good. But I think that's what I ultimately hope comes from this work is the the capacity, greater capacity for love, peace, and joy for us as individuals and in our individual alone internal landscapes, as well as within our interpersonal one-to-one -one relationships, and then ultimately within the collective, within our human fabric as a whole, is expanding capacity for love, peace, and joy in all of those concentric circles and interlocking realms that we inhabit and exist. Mm. Mm. Dr. Webb, thank you so much for this conversation, for your time, your energy, your lifetime of work and wisdom mm -hmm. is such a beautiful gift for me. So if no one else listens to this, know that it has had a huge impact on me. And it's conversations like this that I, I, I so appreciate because I, it's so deeply felt and I see it impact the ways in which I move through the world and the ways in which I work with people and my relationships. And I'm always so grateful for that. So thank you for doing what you're doing. I think it's incredibly vital for me and what I want to create. And I am in line with you in terms of I want to love, peace, and joy. Can you tell folks how to find you, how you want them to find you, how you, how you, how you want them to interact with you, if you want them to interact with you? <laughs> yes. So thank, thank you, Adam, for your feedback and for your willingness to reflect back to me the some of the impact or results the fruits of some of the work that i've done i don't you could you might relate to that but those of us who who give of ourselves to the public to communities whether it be intellectual energy or stuff like that or physically the hearing that from people who've encountered our work helps to refill my cup, I think, because it is a lot of giving and we can't, we don't always get in return in equal measure. And so to have, to get feedback, I think is a, is a part of what we receive back. And so I appreciate your feedback as part of making it a reciprocal dynamic kind of connection. So I appreciate that. And, and for, I also really want to appreciate and acknowledge you for take the time and space to have this conversation on your platform. I really appreciate that because there are so many people who aren't willing to even look at colorism, much less give it considered and thoughtful attention. So I really, really appreciate that. And as far as where people can interact with me, I would love for people to interact with me. My go-to places are LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube, and you can find me by either searching Dr. Sarah L. Webb on those platforms and or searching Colorism Healing on those platforms. And 
saying that, also colorismhealing.com is a, a hub of lots of resources, over a decade of content, databases, lists, PDF downloads, so many things to dig into at colorismhealing.com as well. Mm-hmm. You, I have to say, you are a content queen. It is... <laughs> It's hard not to have a complex when I visit your sites. As much as as grateful as I am, there's always a bit of me that says, oh, I I could be doing a bit more, (laughs) a lot more. (laughs) It's amazing. It's such a beautiful offering. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I will say it's it's a decades, over a decades content stuff. So, and I repurpose. I say the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Webb. Thank you.